Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. We're in Boston today with Chef Michael Pagliarini from two restaurants, really, Julia and Benedetto. I've only been to one of them, Michael, but it's been among the best dining experiences I've ever had at Benedetto, and I can't wait to try Julia. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to have you. And Jennifer Eddy from Root. Uh, Jennifer is doing some amazing work in the restaurant space, or at least in the culinary space as well, as well um, around workforce development. Uh, and this industry has been an industry that lends itself to many people finding their first jobs. Uh, Jennifer, can't wait to hear about the work and the impact that you're having. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for asking me. Um, Mike, I want to start with you. Uh, I wasn't exaggerating. Uh, I don't know what the secret sauce is at Benedetto, but we've had, my wife and I have had so many really great meals there. You've got uh, just a magical touch with pasta and many other dishes. And you've got kind of a, uh, an amazing um, culinary pedigree. I think you went to culinary school, CIA, uh, Culinary Institute of America, uh, also worked with uh, people like uh, Christopher Myers and others uh, in the restaurant industry in Boston. Did you uh, always know you were going to be a chef? I had no idea. I, I went to college in Pennsylvania, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and um, at the University of Scranton, and had because a because that's where you're from. Or? It's, it's where I'm from. I grew up in the Northeast, the Wyoming Valley, so that part of you know the Susquehanna River, along the Susquehanna River between Wilkes-Barre and Scranton, and um, I went to college there, and I spent four years at the University of Scranton, and during my junior year, I did a study abroad program, and I lived in Paris, and for the first time in my life, I was shopping for myself, going to markets discovering the food culture there. And I was far more interested in the cheese and the wine than I was in the studies that I was pursuing. But it was an opportunity that really opened my eyes to the possibility of a career in the culinary field. I'm from Pennsylvania. Uh, Scranton is not known to be a culinary capital or to probably produce many uh, culinary champions. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. But but what you have to remember about that area, there's a, there's a cultural diversity. I mean, when I was growing up, there was great Italian cooking. This is in people's houses. Um, you know, great Italian and Lithuanian and Polish and Slovak and like the church bazaars where you'd get some of the most delicious food. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I'm from Pittsburgh originally, and Pittsburgh's ethnic background is almost exactly what you've just described. One of the things that I learned from my mom, who's a wonderful cook, and we spend all of our time together in the kitchen or talking about food or reading cookbooks, but um, she just enjoyed having people in the house. She enjoyed entertaining, and she was never happier than when there were 10 or 12 or 15 of... I, I have two brothers, so you can imagine three boys in the house, all of their friends, and um, everybody wanted to come to our house so my mom could cook for them. Uh, and Jennifer, Cambridge School of Culinary Arts for yourself, right? You're also a culinary school graduate. I am, but I did not start off my career that way. I was actually working on Wall Street for many years, first in banking and then in sales and trading. And um, that the catalyst for going on to cooking school is uh, I had two things happen in my life. I got married and, and had children, and my mother died about a month before my first child was born. So I went uh, back to work for about six months, and when I came home to pick up my son um, from, uh, you know, at the end of a long day, and he cried for the nanny, it, it occurred to me that there are things that are more important in life, and that's family and, and living life to the fullest and possibly pursuing other passions. So that's when I enrolled in Cambridge School of Culinary Arts. But, it, but it, how did you pick that? I mean, you so you decided to make a life change, and you could have gone in lots of di different directions. Why was it culinary arts? I grew up in a family that lived for food. Um, my parents got mar married when they were about 19 years old. My dad actually taught my mother to cook, and she ultimately went to cooking school in New York City. But we used to we most of my years were in uh, just outside Princeton, New Jersey, and we would on the weekends make bread. We'd make pasta. We'd hang that over the back of the ladder back chairs to dry, and it would leave all kinds of nasty marks. And ultimately, would travel around large parts of the world uh, primarily to eat new and creative foods. Um, and so my parents instilled that love of food in me, and um, it's translated into uh, my passion and interest. Yeah, so pretty strong parental 
um, influence on on both of your parts. Mike, how does a chef come back from Paris and find jobs in the best restaurants um, in the United States? I know you also worked at Hammersley's Bistro as I think a first job. How did that, how did it begin? What's what does somebody do if they want to do that? Well, I was already a student. And I enjoyed being a student. And sometimes that momentum carries you forward into continuing your education. Um, but what I did was I, I went back home and I was living at home again. And I really didn't know uh, how I was going to proceed in my career. I thought maybe it was going to be enology uh, and viticulture. And I was actually applying to UC Davis. And someone there said to so me... In terms of the wine? Yep, yeah. Passion for wine. Yeah. Okay. And someone there wrote back and said, it sounds like you should be in culinary school. And then the light started to go on. Um, I took a continuing education class at the CIA and fell in love with the Hyde Park campus. And I got a job at a restaurant in Pittston, Pennsylvania, to gain the necessary work experience to apply to the, the, to the CIA. And I eventually did. I went to school there. Um, I spent two years, and on the weekends, I would drive to Boston because my wife, Pam, was living here at the time, working, and that's how I got to know the Boston food community and eventually get my first job with Gordon Hammersley in the South End. And uh, and tell us how that actually came about. Um, I was walking around the, the, the South End on Tremont Street, and I had heard of Hammersley's Bistro. And uh, I was drawn, having lived in Paris, I was in love with this bistro style of cooking. And there was a produce delivery being delivered through the front door. I mean, the door's locked. This is the, you know, late morning, early afternoon. So the restaurant's not open. It's not open. And there was a produce delivery going in. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to follow that in the front door and see if anybody would give me a chance. So I walked in the front door with the produce delivery I handed my resume and cover letter to Gordon, who happened to be there, and he shook my hand and hired and what, me on the spot. What year was this? Because Gordon is kind of a larger-than-life figure in the Boston food scene. This was 1999. Okay. So he, he was a big deal then. He was a huge deal. Yeah. Yeah. And it was that um, that kind of characteristic review or uncharacteristic? I mean, that took a fair amount of, you know, what's better to do that. I don't know what... I mean... I guess I just seized the moment. I, I saw something that w- looked, you know, incredibly appealing. And I thought, I, I need to find a, a job and who better, why why not at least ask and see what happens. And, and uh, as it turned out, Gordon needed a needed someone and uh, I, I did my best. And you were on your way. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer, didn't uh, foreign travel also play a pretty pivotal role for you in terms of what you're doing now? With Root, I'd read about a trip to Cambodia that you'd made where you'd seen, a, I guess, what could be described as a training restaurant. Uh, tell us about that and tell us what Root is doing today and how it got founded. Absolutely. I, like Michael, actually did spend my junior year abroad in France also and developed a true passion for bistro eating. And I got rather hefty on almond croissant and celery remoulade. So that cemented my love for that kind of food. Um, and then uh, you know, at this point in my life, I've started doing a little more traveling, and I was over with a group of um, women on a bike trip, and we had actually been visiting an orphanage. We were visiting Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. And uh, when we were in Cambodia, we went to this one orphanage, and we were talking to some folks who worked there, and they said at the age of 18, these young people were actually left nowhere. They were not kicked out on the street, but they had to leave the orphanage. They had no jobs no training and no place to live. There's a Swiss couple that had been working at the orphanage that, that recognized this as a real problem, and they went back to Switzerland and did some fundraising, came back and opened up this amazing place called Haven, which is so appropriately named. It was um, a teaching restaurant. They also provided housing, um, English as a second language, and it was a one-year program that taught front of the house and back of the house skills to orphans and displaced young people um, with all the wraparound uh, life skills support necessary to survive in the world. Uh, And at the end of this uh, year, they would actually help them find jobs. And it had, it really, when I, when we were having lunch there with the group, I truly got goosebumps. I was watching the young 
people walk around. It was sort of a big brother, big sister, you know, older kids helping younger kids, serving and cooking. The joy on their face, the joy of cooking and serving and uh, and having um, a, a real skill in life that they're excited about was was palpable. And I I left that thinking, wow, this combines a lot of the things that I love in life, and that's you know helping people, it's food, it's young people, and delicious food. And when I got back to the states, I I started you know looking around. It's like, are there any programs like this? The interesting part of that program is there is a social enterprise element to it, in that they ran a cafe that would help fund their mission, which was to train these young folks. What part of the country was it in? It's in Siem Reap. In Siem Reap in Cambodia. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, you so know, and I asked because I, I've been there to Cambodia twice. It's such a desperately poor country. Um, and to think of the situation that orphans would be in in that country probably is, you know, takes it down even on another level. And then to find this very entrepreneurial uh, and even, as you describe it, kind of joyous experience um, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't see anything like that when I was in Cambodia, but uh, thank goodness you did. Well, I think if you went back now, you'd see a lot of that. It's a very forward-thinking com- uh, country. And when I got back to the States, I thought, wow, what a unique um, or- way to run a business and to help people. And there are a lot of organizations like that in the U.S., and specifically uh, D.C. Central Kitchen, which I'm sure you're familiar with, sure. as well as Liberty's Kitchen in, in New Orleans, Um and I had mentioned to a good friend that this is something I was really interested in doing. And she she happened to be from New Orleans. And she said, wow, I have a good friend who actually started something like that called Liberty's Kitchen. So I connected with Janet Davis, who is a founder, and flew down there and spent uh, many days um, with Liberty's Kitchen and their staff and learning a lot about what they do and uh, how they, they really got their start going into the schools to make nutritious meals because the, the school system food was really pretty repulsive. It was a lot of microwave product, no fresh produce. Um, so Liberty's Kitchen introduced that. They connected with Grodat, uh, which is a youth farm. A lot of their produce comes from them. Anyway, so ultimately, um, Janet Davis helped us write a business plan um, and helped guide uh, what we're doing at Root now. Um, tell us a little bit more about how Root works, who you serve, what, uh, just p- paint a picture for us, what kind of um, um, life circumstances are your, um, are they coming from the, for the folks that you're trying to help? Sure. Well, Root is a nonprofit social enterprise, um, and we train at-risk youth ages 16 to 24, the culinary skills um, and all the wraparound life skills necessary to have a better chance um, of success. And uh, the the program's 12 weeks long. Uh, it's individually, it's split between 50% of the time is learning culinary skills and the other 50% of the time is learning um, interviewing skills, financial literacy, teamwork, um, sort of a, a variety of, of wraparound life skills necessary. Um, about the fifth week of the program, our, our students actually are placed in what we call externships at local restaurants. So they get uh, on-the-job experience in a very busy kitchen that's not our own. They do, our, our, the way our organization is structured as a social enterprise, we have three businesses that we run that not only provide revenue uh, to support our mission, but it also... Um, it, it provides on-the-job training. So we have a, a takeout cafe, which uh, is a great opportunity for point-of-sale training, the ability to learn the toast system um, and interface and interpersonal skills with customers. We have a catering business, both on-site and off-site, as well as a very large event space, which is beautiful. It's right on the water is Salem Harbor. So we have the ability to train our young people to actually um, do both front of the house and back of the house uh, from a catering standpoint too. Okay, I'm gonna. I want to come back in a minute and talk about where some of these young people end up. But um, chef, I'm not done mining your uh, experience and your, your your kind of your career path. So you talked about starting at uh, Hammersleys, following the produce delivery into Hammersleys. Um, where did you Where did you go from there? And when did the idea come to you that I could have my own restaurant? Or was that always there? Well, after Hammersleys, I started working at Radius 
And uh, Radius was in the financial district across from South Station, and it was Michael Schlau and Christopher Myers who were such a dynamic force in the restaurant community. Esty Parsons was the the personality and persona and embodiment of that front of the house and and the uh, uh, hospitality. And my eyes were wide open because I had never experienced a restaurant of that scope and ambition because they were bringing in not just local talent, but we were doing events like Spinazzola where they would bring in guest chefs from all over the country. And I remember as a pretty junior cook preparing lunch for people like Eric Repair and Danielle Bouloud and like they were great it, chefs it, from French chefs chef. from New York. Yes. Yeah. And my eyes were open to, you know, food and cooking from all over the world. I learned who Jean-Georges Van Gerichten was and, you know, Michel Bra. And there were, there were a lot of French uh, chefs in that initial wave of inspiration for me. And I learned for the first time how to be responsible for setting up a station, for working the Garmanger station and making the amuse-bouche and, and all of the... Wait, what was the it, what was the station that you said, the Garmanger? Gar- Garmanger, which is... Well, it's, a, it's an old French term that refers to the cold kitchen. Um, and it's not a neat and tidy category anymore because that station has sort of morphed and evolved, but you call it GM and it's it that that uh or or for garmanger and you're essentially preparing all of the uh small bites and appetizers okay um, so you start there and then you progress through all of the different stations in the kitchen um so i worked for michael and christopher for many years and was exposed to um influences and people from all over the industry uh and there there came a moment when they needed a uh, a chef to run Via Mata. Which is a new restaurant that they were opening up, or it, it, it existed, but they needed a chef? Well, it was their newest, and uh, it had been open for about a year or two. Um, I had, in the interim, uh, traveled to Chicago, because my, my wife was going to Kellogg to earn her MBA. I tagged along and wound up working for Grant Ackett's, who himself was fresh out of the French laundry and was running a kitchen in Evanston, Illinois for the very first time. And I found my way to Grant's kitchen and spent two remarkable years with him before he went on to open his now world famous Alenia, Aviary, Next, Royster, all of the restaurants that he has created in Chicago and beyond. Um, but we came back to Boston. I came back to Michael's Kitchens and Christopher's restaurants, and I became a manager for the first time at Radius, and then progressed to being a chef de cuisine and being in charge of this exciting, dynamic, vibrant Italian restaurant. And that's when I started to dream about my first place and imagine what it might be like and what the style of it was. But but it was at Via Mata that I really started to think, okay, I want to do this. And I had that entrepreneurial spirit. And uh, when the time was right, I gave it a shot. I, <laughs> I quit and, my job and <laughs> tried to open a restaurant. Yeah. And you said in reference to Radius that you, it, it was the first time you'd been in a restaurant that had the ambition that uh, it had and displayed. So talk a little bit about the ambition, that your ambition for your restaurants now, for Julia and Benedetto. Paint, paint a picture of what they're like, what you're hoping the customer takes away. Um, and really, what, when you use the word like an ambition for a restaurant, what does that, what's that say to you? Well, for me, it started in, in, in the kitchen. And the, everything from the quality of the ingredients and the purveyors and the sourcing, which, I mean, in some regards, restaurants are a network of purveyors. They're a network of people that provide the ingredients that you're cooking with. And the quality of ingredients and the sourcing of those ingredients was one of the things that I carried forward with me. Relationships that I started at Radius or was part of as a young cook at Radius are still in place, you know, 15 plus years later. And not only is it the quality of the ingredient, but it is the uh, level of the craft. So 
what you attempt, what you undertake, the level of education and discipline and execution during actual dinner service, um, you create this, uh, what we call an a la minute style cooking, where when you order a particular dish, we prepare it for you in that moment. And we sort of identify the critical aspects of the dish, the essential nature of it, and try to capture this this moment, this time when that dish and these these beautiful products are at their absolute peak. And th- that's kind of the jewel that we hold in our mind, capture the essential of, of these ingredients. And how does that square with, so like, let's say Jennifer, Jennifer and I come in tonight to continue this conversation and we have an amazing dish and you've captured the moment and uh, we come back a week later, we want the same thing. You have to have the discipline to capture it again almost the same way or how do you think about that you have to have the discipline and the preparedness to live in that moment restaurants are live performances every night it's never going to be exactly the same you strive for consistency um, and you try to put good systems in place good training good recipes in place that allow for consistency but you're working with wild and foraged foods that are inconsistent you're working with different cooks at different skill levels, um, preparing that food on a nightly basis. So there's going to be variety. Um, and we try to think of our menu as a living document that needs to evolve and change every day based on the realities of the market and the best of what we're seeing. So you're really helping me see like a level. I don't know how it feels for you, Jennifer, because you, you kind of run a kitchen as well, but there's a level of complexity um, as as Chef Mike describes it, that I just really hadn't appreciated before in terms of, as you say, kind of like the living nature of the of the products that you're dealing with. It's fascinating. Well, I think Billy and I are going to have to come in tonight to hold you accountable <laughs> for <laughs> making we'll re- yeah. Consistency. We're going to put you in the kitchen. We'll put you to work. <laughs> and, and, Gladly. And 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 the and the the. Kind of the impression, the emotional resonance, the the vibe that you want your guests to take away. How do you describe well, that, that? I mean, people are experiencing the restaurant on all different levels for so many different reasons. Um, in the larger sense, I want our food and hospitality to provide the backdrop for you to engage with the people around the table. Um, sometimes when we're at our very best, we're almost invisible. I want you to have a conversation. And so many of the things that, that Jennifer was saying about food being the nucleus, being the starting point for addressing um, societal challenges, life challenges, and acquiring skills that are important on a social level, on a personal level, they all have to do with food. And uh, it's a very powerful metaphor that I, I carry forward but ultimately, I want us to practice our craft. I want it to do it, you know, quietly without a lot of fanfare. There's no room for the ego-driven, you know, stop and pay attention and this is how you should eat this dish. I just want to set the table. I want us to sort of uh, carry the mantle of responsibly sourcing. And I want you to feel good about what you're eating. But I also want you to just sort of relax, enjoy the company, the people that you're with, and let the whole organism just uh, evolve and express itself in a natural and organic way and um, just live in that moment. Chef Mike, you obviously had uh, a a lot of talent and some great opportunities to hone your talent and experiences and great restaurants. But when it comes to opening your own, what do you have to do? What do you do first? How do you put together the pieces? Well, I I actually had no idea. And uh, I, uh, I I left my job and I had more of a dream and a, and a business plan and a vision. It was Christopher Myers who told me, he said, put it on your refrigerator, put your vision, your snapshot, your elevator pitch, whatever you want to call it. And just to remind yourself just what keep you're looking at it after and to, to be specific and to be focused about what you want to create. So there's the, there's part of it. That's the vision. And, I had that. I had a really clear idea of what I wanted Julia to be. And um, the other part of it, though, is the brick and mortar part and the the business deal part and the leasing. And it's kind of a long answer about, and everybody's path is different, but we, Pam and I, are small business owners at Julia. 
and we did it with a small business loan, and uh, we did it with a shoestring budget, and we did it with help from friends and family, and we partnered with a really engaging um, and thoughtful local realtor, uh, a guy named Jesse Bercon, who took a community-building approach uh, to opening restaurants where he would introduce people with projects that he thought were a good fit for a particular neighborhood. And, uh, and, and Jesse introduced us to the right people and a little bit at a time we gained some traction. So, I mean, it sounds like the old fashioned way and the hard way and no real shortcuts. I I knocked on doors. I met business, uh, leaders in all of the squares in Cambridge, you know, from, from Kendall, Central, Union, Harvard, Porter, and I started talking to landlords myself, and uh, we looked at a lot of spaces before we were able to find the home now of, of Julia at 1682 Mass Ave, halfway between Porter and Harvard Square. Um, and I should have asked you this earlier, but where do the names of the two restaurants come from? The Via Julia in Rome. Um, we were visiting. My brother was living there. He set up a little pensione for, for Pam and I, and we were steps away from the Via Giulia, and I think we just had a little too much wine and decided that we were going to open an Italian restaurant, and uh, the, na- the name stuck. And, uh, it, we, and how about yeah. Benedetto? Benedetto, uh, a trip to Umbria. So both names are souvenirs from trips. We were in a little town called Norcia, and uh, I had a particularly memorable bowl of fresh truffles, Trangozzi, which is the which is a thick spaghetti that they make in Umbria. And we were sitting on Piazza San Benedetto, and uh, it just sounded really good on Bennett Street. So there we are. Love it. <laughs> Having had the opportunity to travel a little bit when you were young and um, just have your senses, I guess, touched or provoked by the travels in, in, in foreign lands. Um, was there, um, was there a, a food moment that you can remember or was it just kind of the, uh, aggregation of all of them that sparked your interest? It's an aggregation. I mean, the first time I traveled to Italy, I was in fifth grade and I remember now that you asked me the question, I flash back to the first time I had a blood orange and I had blood orange juice, and we were in Capri, and we were overlooking the the crystal waters, and I'd never experienced anything like it. Um, but as I was older in college, it, it was definitely my time living in Paris and experiencing the markets and the coffee roasters and the cheesemongers and the, the wine purveyors. And I can remember um, when my father visited in my, my, my parents' visit, the whole family was there. They visited uh, my small apartment in Paris, and there was a wine bar in my neighborhood. And on Sundays during market day, they would take the barrels, turn them upside down, and they became impromptu tables, and they would serve oysters from from the, you know, Brittany coast, and, and they would pour, like, a, a simple, crisp, white, refreshing Loire white wine and just standing in the marketplace, eating these oysters and drinking the, the, the white wine from the Loire, it was just kind of set a lot of things in motion. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty memorable. It's making me both hungry and thirsty. Uh, so, Jennifer, when you listen to Mike talk about that evocative food experience that he's had, um, can you tell us one of your own that might have also just, you know, fueled this passion for uh, food and for staying connected to food in your career? You know, similar uh, to Michael, I um, I always traveled with my family throughout uh, Italy, and we were, were in Provence, and I remember we'd go to the open markets and make these elaborate meals at home. Truffles were definitely a big one, too. Um, and then when I was uh, living there for a year in um, France, in northern France, I, I traveled virtually every weekend to a different destination I had a URL pass, and I actually eradicated it a few times so I could get extra months of traveling because I couldn't afford to get another one. <laughs> but, you know, I'd go to, at that point, there was Yugoslavia. I'd go to Italy. I'd go to Germany. I'd go to London, you know, everywhere and just uh, eat, sample their local fare. And it, it uh, made me very happy and quite fat, too. And I think of, wait, when I was listening to Jennifer talk, I think of the restaurant and the culinary community as kind of a great equalizer 
in the sense that um, somebody like you with obviously uh, both natural and learned talent could walk into Hammersley's and get a job. And you talked about going into Grant's restaurant in Chicago. Um, you, you make it sound like, you know, you were just lucky enough to wander in and they hired you, but you obviously had talent that they respected. Um, and then there, Jennifer, there's the folks that you're working with who are acquiring certain skills that could actually lead to their very first employment. Is that is that the goal? Absolutely. Um, uh, I'd say probably about 50 to 60 percent of our young people that go through the externships uh, end up getting job offers from that externship where they've actually worked. Um, you know, the real the real important point here, though, is you bring these young folks in from very disparate and very different backgrounds, um, different communities, different schools. They all come together to cook together and learn to cook together and, and learn these skills. And at the very end of their uh, five-hour shift at Root, they all sit down for a family meal together to talk to one another in a very casual way. And that I think is probably one of the most powerful parts of Root is, you know, these young disconnected people with, you know, some with no families at all, some with no homes, suddenly have a community and a friendship um, and a family that they, it's almost a micro community and family that's developed there. Chef, I, I've heard so many uh, restaurateurs talk about how their um, their restaurant feels like a family, that they found family there. I remember um, Mike Anthony at Union Square Cafe telling me that his parents were divorced. He grew up in a broken home. And when he got into the restaurant business, he found the kind of sense of family that he had realized he was missing. Do you do you strive to create that or does that come naturally at, at your restaurants? Well, I, I completely agree that the sense of camaraderie in a kitchen is one of the most powerful galvanizing forces that keeps people coming back you work really hard and you spend a lot of hours together and you have to provide at least now in an in an ownership role you the the cultural aspect um keeping it vibrant and providing a context and a, and, and and sort of like a a mission and a vision that people can believe in and give their time and skills to and when people are working that hard in a collaborative effort um, there is a, a really powerful connections. Um, I have friends from many, you know, kitchen years are like dog years. Like you work, you work, you work a year together and it feels like you've known that person for seven years and friends and colleagues and relationships that I developed in my first kitchens here in Boston are still in place mm. and they carry you forward. And it's a very powerful connection. So absolutely. And do you do an actual family meal um, at the restaurant with your staff? Sure. Every day. Every both day. restaurants. Yeah. Every day. So everybody gets to eat together and know what's on the menu better that way. Absolutely. It's just, I mean, you come, how many other jobs do you come to work and sit down and share a meal together? Right. It just right. doesn't, doesn't happen. Um, but in a sense, that's what we do. I mean, we feed people, and if we can't feed one another and take care of one another, then we should probably rethink <laughs> the whole business. <laughs> rethink the whole thing. Yeah, Jennifer, can you tell us about um, an individual who's been through the program? You don't need to use names if you don't want to, but uh, just somebody who the kind of I guess the the trajectory that you've seen them um, go through by having the opportunity to be at root. Sure. Um, we had a young man who actually uh, was very prompt, came to class on time every day, and all of a sudden he was his, um, it was spotty. He'd show up late, uh, looking a bit disheveled. It turned out uh, he had become homeless, and he was sleeping on his aunt's sofa for a while. Um, at that point, he actually dropped out of school. We did continue to see him at root, and we, we coaxed him along, and eventually... He came back full on into the program, eventually graduated, re-entered um, his high school and is graduating this uh, spring. So I think, you know, the sense of self he, he was able to gain from gaining a skill and, and the sense of community he, he, he felt at root with the, the family and friends and students there was very powerful in his case to sort of move him to the next step. We've had a few sort of sad situations where there's a, a young lady from the Sudan whose family was persecuted. They were 
um, sent to Kenya and ultimately arrived in Salem. Uh, and she was one of the, the top performing students in our program. She had an externship at one of a, a very good restaurant in Salem called Ledger. She'd show up on time. They thought she was outstanding. And literally one day she completely disappeared. We didn't hear from her at all for about 48 hours. And it turns out her family was evicted. When a family is evicted, they can apply for a bed somewhere. And, and in Massachusetts, they'll send families or individuals to wherever the closest beds are. In this case, they were sent to Fall River, which is you know, sad because she was about two weeks from graduating. Her cell phone then went out of service. And how um, far is Fall River? It's an hour and a half away, and a half so away. it's it's not so she couldn't commute right. back. Ultimately, she did come back unannounced about a week ago uh, to check in with us. We were we helped her continue to get her serve safe certification so she'd be able to use it as a a next step in her new home. But right there, she had been you know developing friends and uh, a sense of community in Salem, and due to the housing situation was uprooted and has to start all over again. And you can understand how that cycle continues. Now, let me ask you also about, um, uh, I guess, you know, the hard question. And I know this from our work at Share Our Strength because we're taking on challenges that in many cases um, a lot of society is, is, is not taking on or has given up on. Uh, they're, they're not all successes either is, I guess, what I want to ask you about. And when there aren't successes, um, have, have you been able to kind of parse out what's the difference between somebody and I know it's hard to generalize because everybody comes from very different situations but what are the differences between those who go through the program at root and are able to go on farther and those who aren't separate from being you know moved to Fall River or something like that well one of the biggest issue issues is is housing and and feeling safe at home and in each case we have many students who either have very much transitional housing, no housing, or um, they're in a violent situation where they, they don't necessarily stay at home. They may run away or whatever. So that is something that needs to be addressed to help, uh, you know, move us, you know, make this more successful for these young people. We In our very first pilot program, we had three, uh, two young men and a young woman um, the one of the young men was very concerned about his math skills, and as we know, particularly with baking, there are some math skills involved there. And he um, stayed with the program for about um, two or three weeks, and then disappeared. Ultimately, uh, he reapplied for our next program, and about halfway through, started uh, mentioning that he was worried about how he's doing school specifically in math. There's another young man in the program who sort of raised his hand and goes, actually, that's the one thing I'm good at. So they ended up meeting after um, um, class every day, and they would help each other. He would help them with his math skills, and, and now that young man is also graduating this spring. So, so we're getting more of a function of the kind of the community that you've built necessarily than any specific skill that you're trying to impart. Chef, how do you decide what types of uh, community uh, engagements to get involved in. I know you get asked to do absolutely everything, and uh, um, I know that you're, you're part of Share Strength and No Kids Hungry's work, but how do you determine, just with limited bandwidth, at the end of the day, finite bandwidth like we all have, what uh, is the right thing for, for your own involvement? We sit down with our team and talk about it and find out what is important to them, what's resonating with our managers, with our, our line cooks, with our service staff. Um, and we get out in the community and get to know people. And um, you, you're, it's true, we have a limited amount of bandwidth and, and resource, but um, these, these are things, again, these go back years. And for, for example, we um, this Sunday, we hosted uh, the Big Sister Celebrity Chef Dinner at Benedetto, and I was very proud to to be able to do that to have a restaurant where that was this possible is to benefit the Big Sister organization. That, yeah, yes, right. Yeah, works with, yep. And it's one of two major fundraisers that they do every year. Now, now this event was something that I have been a part of on and off since I started cooking in Boston. I remember Michael and Christopher hosting this event. I remember participating it, participating in it as a young cook. And then later being invited to participate as a guest chef. Um, and over those years, we got to know 
the organization, the people there, to understand their mission, and and it just resonated with us. Um, and just being part of the food community here, the restaurant community, um, it's such a generous, you know, community of chefs and restaurant owners. And I feel like the Boston community really steps up when they're asked to participate on a, on a, on a charitable level. And I think, you know, I've often asked myself, well, why, why ask restaurants? Because they're not always the, the most, you know, you know, capital rich businesses and in they're, they're hard businesses to sustain and to run on their own. Um, but it comes back to food and cooking and the sort of base level, um, reassurement, reassuring quality that food and cooking and hospitality can provide and where better to come together than a table in your community where food is served to to begin that process of you know talking about and addressing the social needs and concerns that are in front of us every day yeah and that of course is at the you know the bedrock of share our strengths philosophy is that food is this connector and that people who make their livelihoods by feeding people are going to, uh, you know, find a way to get involved. And I think so many of us, uh, separate from Share Our Strength, just think of our our favorite restaurant as a part of our neighborhood, a part of our community. And um, that's why we turn to you so often. I, and, and I think that, that that's a sign when a restaurant could feel like it is part of a community and where, where the community has a sense of ownership of that restaurant, that's when it's, it's working. That's when it's, you know, has a chance at, you know, staying, you know, being vibrant and busy and having healthy business there for, for a number of years. Um, I love the format that we've, we've done at the, the Cyclorama event. Yeah, this is our No Kid annual No Kid Hungry Dinner that we hold at a venue here called Cyclorama. And we, there are tables where people are in groups of 10 or 12. And the ability, this is, this is natural for us to, because we, as chefs and restaurant owners, we um, engage with tables of that size on a nightly basis. So it's a more natural way to have a conversation, to get to know the people around your table, so to speak, and let them engage with one another. I love setting our tables um, at both Julia and Benedetto, but there are so many remarkable people that pass through Benedetto, all different walks of life. And it's such a rich and vibrant and diverse community and people from all over the world are coming in. And I like to think in some small way, setting a, a, a table and providing good food and service is helping these conversations along and and, and hopefully people are saving the world while they're having dinner at... Yeah. Well, <laughs> we should say that Benedetto was in the Charles Hotel, which is next to yeah. the Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government, right. and, and everybody does pass through there. Um, let, let me ask you about something, both of you, that may affect you each in different ways. Uh, unemployment now is down to 3.8%, the lowest it's been in 20 years. And uh, we're finding that some of the folks that we serve at Share Our Strength are in better positions than they have been before and don't need necessarily need as much assistance. Are, are you seeing the advantages of that, Jennifer, as an organization trying to help people get jobs? And Chef, are you seeing the challenges of, of finding people in a, in a tighter labor market uh, that you need to make your business run? How does that impact you each? Well, I'd say from our perspective, it's what it helps Root come for full circle because you know, we were bringing these young people in and giving them a skill. Um, and so that from a social work and, and school standpoint, that's phenomenal. And a community standpoint, that's great for these kids. But the other side of the coin is we're really helping to provide a pipeline of a somewhat trained staff for the, the restaurant and food service industry, which is in desperate need of skilled help. And the difference, you know, a lot of restaurants do want to hire um, young people and, and those that that need the job. But in a busy kitchen, they really don't have time to make sure that they either have the certifications or or make sure that they know how to uh, do a process. They, you know, they can't keep training them. So what Root does is we, we put our young people in those situations where they actually are trained in a lot of different situations. And so they're able to jump right in there. The The bigger issue, though, is then actually ensuring that these young people go to, if they're offered a job, actually showing up for the job. And that's where all the wraparound services and other issues come into place. How's it impacting you, Chef? I think 
our restaurants, like every other restaurant in the in the Boston community, are our, our single biggest challenge is finding talented people. Um, and I I talk to chefs every day, and we, we get together, and that's just the common refrain. Um, there is a very strong need, as as Jennifer said, for skilled labor in in the restaurants. So so it's a challenge, um, and you feel like you're constantly in outreach mode. Um, we invite people in all the time for have dinner at the bar, experience what we do, uh, spend a day in our kitchen. I've worked with Cambridge Culinary over the years to um, attend some of their classes. I did a pasta making class at the Cambridge, you know, uh, culinary school. And, um, and it, we, we actually wound up hiring a really wonderful and, and talented young cook from uh, Cambridge Culinary. But you're definitely in constant outreach mode. Um, and more than ever, you rely on the core team that you have to create that community um, so that when someone does come on board, there is a cultural context there. There is someone who can help train you, help get you acclimated, help get you started, because... Uh, it's not easy getting started in a new kitchen. It's really not, not especially not a busy one with high demands and and uh, you know a, a, a very high level of expectation and accountability. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's a challenge. And the seasonal nature of some New England villages and locations is we have gotten I, within the past three weeks probably seventy inquiries. We'd love to hire one of your kids. We we don't have enough to, to actually hand around, but you know, the beach clubs that are only open in the summer, I mean, and so they're they're grabbing up any of the stuff that sort of the more consistent restaurants and catering operations would have year round. Well, that's too. encouraging. It I, is. I feel great about that. Yeah. Um well we're running out of time here, but tell us what's um next for each of you. We were just talking, Chef, during one of our breaks about um, your love of traveling and the inspiration you get from it and not being able to do enough of it. Um, I, I was going to say that one of the things as a customer of yours that I love is when I come to Benedetto, I know that, you know, most of the time you're in the kitchen, you're there at Julia. So it's, it's almost like it was, we were talking about Gordon Hammersley. You know, when you went to Hammersley's, you knew that Hammersley was going to be there every night. Are you going to open up more restaurants? Are you going to continue to be the person that cooks our meals? How do you, how do you think about what you want to do next? We're, we're very happy with uh, our two restaurants in the Cambridge community now. And, and Benedetto is only, or not even a year and a half old. Um, so, I'm going to be in the kitchen. Uh, that that's where I want to be. I want to be in the kitchens. I want to be in in my restaurants um, every day. And um, you know, as far as looking forward, I think it's always refining what we do. And one of one of the things that I'm most excited about, and I look forward to every year, is is the the relationships that we have with our purveyors, and um, continuing to make sure that when there is a meeting, a charitable event, the stuff that we're putting on the table makes sense because that, even though it's a backdrop perhaps to to the larger mission of that evening, I was thinking the other day, when we look back five years from now, 10 years from now at a menu that we wrote for a particular event, um, how are we going to feel about what we decided to serve and how we sourced it and where it came from? And I think that that document is going to provide a snapshot not only of our current values and uh, priorities, um, which is why I'm I'm really excited to work with some of the fantastic purveyors that we have, and especially uh, one in particular, um, Bill Braun in Ivory Silo in near Dartmouth in southern coastal Massachusetts, who is putting a, a, an emphasis on seed sovereignty and and food freedom and how Sorry, we what can, does seed sovereignty mean. It means, I mean, there are people like Bill, for example, that believe that seeds are part of the public domain, just like water and air. And we're, we live in a time right now where the, the um, concentration and control over seeds, the most basic you know, starting point for how we provide for ourselves and how we cook is concentrated in the hands of so few and is becoming um, so it's becoming such a, a, a monocultural um, 
and quite frankly, uninteresting, you know, uh, source of the most basic, you know, nutrition, um, that we're, we're, we're better off when we can create a seed bank that is a resource for local growers and find these seeds that have genetic diversity and that produce um, products that are suitable to, in this case, that microclimate in southern coastal Massachusetts and put that control, that food freedom, that seed sovereignty in the hands of more diverse, responsible growers so they can perpetuate it and continue to provide the really the starting point for any good restaurant or community. And all the advantages of diversity that you would find in any other issue. Um, so that's a seed sovereignty is not something I'd heard of before, but that's fascinating. It is the, the evolution of, I mean, our generation of cooks has lived through this farm to table movement and everybody's heard that and good cooking in one sense should always be farm to table and, you know, but continuing that conversation about sourcing, um, the next conversation, the next level is about seeds and seed sovereignty. Fascinating. Yeah. Jennifer, what's next for Root? You're going to continue to grow, I hope. And I'm sure you're getting, as you were just talking about getting requests for, you know, are there are young people that could come work for us? How are you going to kind of keep up with demand? Well, that will be hard. We're also quite young, so we need to be a little careful uh, and cautious about how quickly we grow. We want to focus on our on expanding our current businesses and honing our curriculum so it's exactly what our young people want as well as potential employers want. Uh, we we would like to broaden our reach and possibly introduce um, a, a morning program to slightly older uh, young adults, uh, English as a second language particularly. They're, we're very close to Lynn. Um, and there's a lot of um, – uh, there's a New American Society there. There's a couple partners that could provide a, a great pipeline of folks that would absolutely love to get in the kitchen and get some skills and get out there working in the restaurants. And, and some of these individuals already have their own families, so they're definitely incentivized. And I'd say down the road, once we've sort of um, gotten going – um, and we're happy with where we are. There are an awful lot of other opportunities, including um, introducing a food truck, uh, as well as uh, we have the possibility of uh, opening a community garden on the roof of the warehouse building where we're located, which would not only provide fresh produce for our our our, our class, but it would also um, you know bring in the community to actually see how things are grown and get some of their own food. We we are just now introducing a CSA with Three Sisters Garden Project. Which is a community-supported agriculture program exactly. for those who don't know CSA. Yep. So we're going to distribute some shares locally that will be bought by some folks. But for every share that we sell, we are also going to be providing a share to a low-income family uh, within our area that will be distributed by a farmer who works with the YMCA. Uh, the best way, Jennifer, for listeners to find out more about Root to volunteer to be supportive is, I'm assuming, your website. Tell yes. us what's the best website. Please go to our website, rootns.org, and feel free to reach out directly to me, Jennifer Eddy. Good. Well, thank you for the passion that you bring to this and the passion that you bring to young people. It's really inspiring, and I'm thrilled that we could have you on Add Passion and Stir, Jennifer. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, and Michael Pagliarini, thank you so much. There, there's such a, you know, as you talk, Mike, I feel like there's such an integrity that underlines, uh, underlies that your your commitment to the craft of feeding people well and healthy in ways that are sustainable. Um, and I feel like there's just a lot that the culinary community has to learn from you. So thank you for being with us. It's great to be here. Really a pleasure to talk to you both. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.